Um, I'm very excited to be here with you guys tonight. Um, I'm really grateful to Cord for giving me the opportunity to share with you guys. And we're going to keep going through the same series that you guys have been in, uh, studying the book of John. So if you haven't been here, uh, Cord and Ryan, they've been going through uh, the book of John for the last few weeks. And just to give you guys a, a brief rundown, um, if you're not a Bible scholar, there are four Gospels in the New Testament. And Gospel just means the good news. So it's just the story of Jesus' life. And they're all kind of unique. Matthew was a, a Hebrews Jewish guy, and he's writing to other Jewish people. Mark was also a Jewish guy with Peter, and he's writing to the Romans, so he has a different perspective. Luke is a Greek doctor who's just being a doctor and wants everything in order and, you know, all lined up. John is one of Jesus' best friends. And so his take on the life of Jesus is much more unique. In fact, I love the way one guy uh, wrote. He said, the other gospels tell us what Jesus said and did, but John tells us who Jesus is. And I love that about John. And the verse that you guys have been looking at that's sort of been over this whole series is from John 20. And John gives his why. Why did he write this? Yeah, there it is. All right. So it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So he did a lot of things, but these are the ones that I wrote down, John says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Everything I'm writing in this book is so that you would believe. That's the whole point. I'm a best friend telling you about Jesus so that you would believe and not just believe, but that you would have life in his name. Because what good is belief if it doesn't lead to life? And so John goes through all these statements of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection. All these I am things that Jesus said. And then he gives us the proof. Here's who Jesus said he was. And here's how he proved he was who he said he was. And he gives us all these signs and miracles. So you guys have been looking at all these really cool ones. The feeding of the 5,000. Jesus walking on water. All these different things. Tonight I get to share with you about Jesus healing the blind man. And we're going to be in John chapter 9. Now, I can really uh, empathize with this guy because I am part of the visually impaired community. Um, Okay, we all can't see. All right. Um, I got glasses in first grade, and it was kind of all downhill from there. Okay. Um, And I remember one time I went to the eye doctor, and they stick you in a room. They make you take out your contacts. They stick you in a room with magazines Okay, what am I supposed to do with that? So then I'm just staring blankly off into space. And then the lady comes and she says, oh, hey, you're going to be in exam room B down the hall. And she leaves. And I'm thinking, lady, you see my chart? You have the information? You want me to find a lettered room alone with no aid? So I would have just been like crawling down the hall. I mean, literally, my it's like right here. You know, I'd have to be. Um, I just waited until she came back and then she took me to the room. So I really can empathize with this guy. So fortunately, I can see. Um, but this man had been blind from birth. And I wish we knew his name because I feel bad continually calling him the blind man. But that's all that John records him as. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 9. This is a really long miracle. It's a lot of verses. I would have probably preached on this for three weeks if um, I was breaking it up. So we're going to just go through a piece of it tonight. So in John chapter 9, where it starts in verse 1, it says, As he went along, Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that this man was born blind? 
So they want to know whose fault it is, okay? And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I just want to pause right there for a second because you may be in this boat. You may have prayed for something for years. Years. I bet the blind man prayed for years that God would heal him. And Jesus says, this whole thing, his whole life is so that God's works would be known. And can you imagine at the end of his life, if people came to the blind man and said, was it worth it? Was it worth it for the first years so that you could literally meet the son of God? I bet you every time he'd say yes. And there are hardships in our lives that we say, God, why? Would it be enough for us if we found out that all of it was for the glory of God? Would it be enough for us if the hardships that we've been praying for for years, God said, this is so that I get the glory in your life? Would we look at the end of our life and say, it was worth it. It was worth it because I met the son of God. God did a work through me. And I think that's what's amazing about this story. So they go on and uh, Jesus does a weird miracle in verse six. He says, after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud and he put it on the man's eyes. And then he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man went and washed and he came home seeing. So you think everyone would be like, yay, blind man can see. No, the whole thing falls apart. The town starts arguing, is this the same guy? Are they pulling a trick on us? What's happening? The Pharisees, the teachers, the religious people, they cannot wrap their brain around this. So they ask the blind man what happened. And he tells them the whole story. And they start arguing about it. They say, well, this guy heals on the Sabbath. Translation, this guy doesn't follow our rules. How can he be from God? And then other people say, but if he's not from God, how is he healing a blind man? And so they, they're arguing, as some high-up people like to do. And they, they, send, they go through this whole thing. They call his parents in. They go through this whole thing. And then they call him back in verse 24. And they say, a second time they summon the man who had been blind. And they tell him, give glory to God by telling the truth. We're going to give you a second chance. We know this man is a sinner. The religious people have already made up their mind about Jesus. We already know he's a sinner. You just tell us how. And he replied, this is brilliant. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. And he's like, uh, I think you're missing the bigger picture. Okay, I, I was the blind man and now I'm not the blind man. And you're arguing about this guy? I don't know. And so they, they just start, you know, arguing with this guy. If he's a sinner, they don't like being lectured. They knew a lot of things. They did not like being lectured, okay? And they keep going. And the last thing in verse 30 that the blind man says to them, he says, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a blind man. If this man was from God, he could do nothing. We've seen the party tricks. We've seen people do crazy things. We've never seen anybody open the eyes of the blind. Ooh, and this ticks the Pharisees off so much. And they literally say, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they throw him out. And then he runs into Jesus again. And Jesus tells him that he is the son of God. And the blind man believes in Jesus. 
And he becomes a follower. And so really what I want us to look at in this miracle today is two sides of a coin. A group of people who missed a miracle and a person who didn't. And you say, how can you miss a miracle? But you and I, we miss miracles every single day. And the the first group that really significantly missed a miracle was the Pharisees. And the Pharisees made a living of missing miracles. They're literally going to kill Jesus because they're so tired of trying to disprove who he is. Now you say, how do the smartest, most religious, most spiritual people of their day miss a miracle? Well, religion caused them to miss the miracle. And you say, how? how? That doesn't even make sense. How could you be religious and miss a miracle? Because you're so concerned with rules that you miss relationship. You're so concerned with the law that you fail to see that the Son of God is standing right in front of you. That a man's eyes were literally opened. Now, (laughs) I'm a young person, okay? I'm not as young as probably some of you think. I'm 35, and I am squarely a millennial. And millennials have been getting dumped on for like 20 years. (laughs) Everyone hates millennials. I don't know why. And behind us, though, is Gen Z, okay? They're insane, okay? They they are. Um, I'm sorry. They're psychos. Uh, My sister's in here somewhere. She's 16. Love her to death. But they're crazy. I teach them every day, okay? Um, I teach 15, 16, 17-year-olds. They were eating Tide Pods a few years ago. They want to cancel the side part. I am not parting my hair down the middle. I don't care what Gen Z says, okay? I'm just, I draw the line, okay? But here's what I want you to know about Gen Z. Because I think, that, you know, people look, and, and millennials, my generation, is the most unchurched generation in the history of America. The millennials. The average 30-year-old, okay? So if you think that the generation behind us is coming into church, they're not. But let me tell you some things about them. The number two cause of death for high schoolers in America, suicide. Dr. Leahy, who's a very famous cognitive behavioral therapist in America, did a study, and he said that the average U.S. high schooler today has the same anxiety level as a 1950s psychiatric patient. I I don't know what to do with that. But here's what I know. You don't throw law at it. You don't throw rules at it. You throw relationship at it. You cannot tell me that someone... Listen, I have kids that sneak into abandoned homes to sleep at night. I have kids that only eat at school. I have kids who don't know their mother and father, couldn't tell me their mother and father's names are raised by grandma or aunt or whatever. Do you think that me throwing rules at them is going to help them find Jesus? There are literally generations coming behind you that are dying literally dying for relationship. They're dying for it. And here's a verse in Titus chapter 2, because people will say, well, you, I get it. You've got to set boundaries and you've got to set truth, but I think it is the prism through which we look at things, whether we look at things through a relationship with God or whether we look at them through this law or through relationship. In Titus chapter 2, um, this is Paul writing to a young leader in the church, and he says, for the grace of God, the grace of of God. The good stuff has appeared that offers salvation to all people. 
And this is what it teaches us. It teaches us to say no. Now, I'm an English teacher. The it in this subject is connected to the grace of God. The grace of God is what teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. And here's the question I have for you. Do you want your kids to follow all your rules or do you want them to have a relationship with Jesus? I I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I want them to follow my rules and have a relationship with Jesus. And I agree with you. But here's what I know. Very rarely does the lens of rule and law lead to relationship. But a relationship, the grace of God, always leads to self-controlled, upright, godly lives. And so how do we practically do this? What is the action step for this? Well, here's the first one. Stop prioritizing being right over real people. <sighs> Listen, I love being right. Okay, I love it. <laughs> I, I teach high schoolers. I'm right 99% of the time, and they do not care. Okay? And at some point, we've got to say, even when we're right, that we're going to hear, that we're going to see. That even when you know better than your children, you're still going to prioritize the relationship piece over being right. Let God be right. And lead them to God. And here's the second one. Love people and listen. Love people and listen. But here's the catch. I know, parents. Listen, I know. You want to listen so that you can tell them the right thing. You want to listen so that you can say, let me unpack why that is incorrect. The hardest part is just to listen. I have a senior in high school who comes into my room to tell me about his breakup with his girlfriend before Valentine's Day. And he is devastated. We've all been there. High school love, right? We've all been there, okay? Listen, I don't give this kid a word of advice. (laughs) He's in a high school relationship and he's heartbroken because she broke up with him right before Valentine's Day and the world is ending and she has a stuffed animal of his that he wants back because it's his. I'm not even kidding. The, The conversations are ridiculous. But I listen. I listen. And the fact that they're willing to talk to their English teacher makes me know that there is a generation that is dying to be listened to. And you might say, well, my kids don't, they don't want to talk to me. Listen, how, when was the last time you sat across from them and asked them something? When was the last time you sat at dinner and said, tell me why you did that dumb thing? Why do you like to play video games? What is it about this thing that you like? And in the perspective that you might get. Or when was the last time that coworker that you disagree with and annoys the absolute everything out of you? When was the last time you listened to them? Heard their story? Why do you think that way? What is it about your life? We have to, we got to say, look, I'm going to prioritize people over being right, and I'm going to love people and listen. And I think that is what Jesus shows us in this story. Now, the second person who completely did not miss the miracle, who was there, was all in, was all for it, was the blind man himself. He didn't miss the miracle. And here's why. Why didn't he miss the miracle? Because he paid attention to the right things. He paid attention to the right things. In fact, he didn't even know the law. 
And Jesus didn't even teach him a thing. Jesus just showed up, met his need, and he said, well, I'm blind and now I can see. He paid attention to the right things. He didn't get embroiled in all this law. He didn't get in this philosophical debate. He even told the guys, he said, look, I don't know anything. I don't even know where this guy comes from. You don't know where he comes from. I just know as part of a miracle. And when Jesus shows up later in the chapter, he says, if you tell me who the son of God is, I'll believe. And Jesus says, basically, you're talking to him. And he says, amen. Amen. That's all he needed. He met, Jesus met a need. The man saw a miracle and he was all in. So how do we not miss miracles in our lives? Here's the first one. We pay attention. We pay attention. And you're like, okay, yeah. Listen, how many times does our day go and go and go and we're just trying to drive and drink our coffee and make our kids stop talking and get through, you know, we're, we, we're not paying attention to miracles. We're not looking for what God's doing. We're trying to like wake up to go back to sleep. Am I right? I'm a teacher. I get it. Okay. Sometimes one of the best things you can do is ask people around you. Ask your spouse, what am I missing that God is doing? Ask your kids, your grown adult kids, what's God doing in your life? What am I missing? Ask the people around you. Uh, Josh and Andrea, who we talked about an offering, they posted on Instagram this week. And she talked about how to us, water, clean water, seems like a basic thing. But to a person who's never had it, it's a miracle. And I just was like, oh my gosh, because I'm thinking about miracles. And there was a miracle right there. So sometimes, if you can't see miracles, you need to widen your lens. You need to see what God is doing around you. How else do we not miss miracles? Number two, remember who you are. Your life is a miracle. And I know we hear that. I know, I get it, I'm special, right? Like, I mean, listen, boomers, you told the millennials we were special for so long. That's what's wrong with all of us, right? We, we, we've been told we get a participation trophy and we're special our whole lives. But truthfully, if you are in Jesus, you are a miracle. Your life exists to be part of the story of God. You think this blind man ever imagined in all his days that he would be part of Jesus revealing that he was the Messiah of the world? No way! But that's what happens when you follow Jesus. So who are you? One of my favorite verses of all time is in Ephesians. If Cord's listening, Ephesians, not Ephesians, okay? Um, I was born in Missouri, not Illinois, but I, anyways. So Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork. Who are you? You were created by God. You were molded by God. You're the best thing you ever made. But it doesn't stop there. You were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Listen, there are people who do not believe in Jesus. There are young people all over the world that are dying for purpose. They want to be a part of something. They want to change the world. Gen Z wants to change the world. Everybody wants purpose. But if you are in Jesus, you have been given divine purpose. And divine purpose means that God, before he put you together, had prepared good works for you to do in advance. You were put on this earth to be a miracle. 
Don't settle for anything less than everything that God wants to show you in your life. Because I think God is sitting up in heaven so many times saying, I have so many miracles. I have so many blessings. But you got to want them. You got to want them more than you want comfort. You got to want them more than you want financial stability. You got to want them more than you want your vacation time. You got to want them enough to go see them happen. And you do that by remembering who you are. And the last one is this, that you act in faith. You act in faith. You just heard me talk about all the issues that Gen Z has. But if I asked you to go be a youth partner, you would say that seventh graders are terrifying. And they are. (laughs) But we have not been given a spirit of fear. We have been given a spirit of faith. And acting in faith means that you say, God, I don't understand this. And this terrifies me, but I'm going to walk into it. Listen, I was graduating from college when my parents decided to adopt a two-year-old. That's faith. My mom was sure. My dad took some time. That's a, that's a big step. And you know what people ask me all the time when they find out I've adopted siblings? They never say, where are they from? What are their names? What do they do? They always say, why did your parents do that? Always. Why? Why? Because they acted in faith. But you know what I know? My sister can be a punk sometimes because she's 16. But there is rarely a day that goes by that I do not recognize the miracle she is in my life. She's a miracle. Her life is a miracle. Her story, everything she does for the rest of her life. And it's not just about her, it's about me and my family and our story. And every person that has come in contact with my brother in his life, it is a miracle. But you know what? It doesn't happen if you don't act. Jesus said to the blind man, go wash. And he didn't say, why? How? Who are you? Which are all legitimate. He doesn't even know who this guy is. He just put mud on his face. He just goes. He just trusts and he goes. He acts in faith. Listen, I'm telling you right now, if you will act in faith, you will see miracle upon miracle. If you will go, if you will give, if you will serve, if you will stop being comfortable and content, you will see acts of faith that turn into miracles. I think so many times people look at at John in in the the New Testament, Jesus, and they say, why doesn't God act? Why doesn't he do that anymore? And I think God looks at us and asks the exact same question. Why don't they do that anymore? Why don't they act in faith anymore? Why don't they trust me for more than just their morning commute and their morning coffee and their nine to five? Why don't they act in faith and see what miracles I'll bring? Because man, it could be good. Carla, who we've asked you to give to, her life's a miracle. She grew up in an orphanage. She made a choice to say, no, I'm going to finish school. I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm going I'm to be active in ministry. I'm going to serve Jesus. Her life's a miracle. And you know what? When you give to that, guess what you become a part of? A miracle. The story of God. The big, giant picture of the kingdom of God. That is what's so amazing about miracles. And so tonight, I just want to encourage you guys from this story that you will see what it looks like to miss a miracle and you will see what it looks like when you see, literally see, and experience a miracle. 
And that you will ask God for big things, big miracles. You will act in faith. You will remember who you are. You will go out there and you will love somebody and listen to somebody that you don't understand. And you will see how God moves in a people, in a generation, in a family. That your life would be a miracle that tells about the goodness of God. That our story would say, this happened so that the works of God and Jesus could be made known and made famous. And that's my prayer for us tonight. So I would like to close tonight in prayer. Uh, I'd like to lift up our stories to God tonight. And then we're actually going to close tonight in worship. Because I believe that worship is a response of our hearts. That we hear something and we learn it and we process it. And then we say, God, I do want some miracles. I do believe that you're a God who still works. And so if you would please join me in prayer. God, I thank you for tonight. God, I thank you for John. I thank you for one of your best friends. He took it upon himself to write down one of the greatest stories, the greatest story that has ever been, God. And that we could, we could dive into it, that we could learn from John, that we could learn from your friends what it looks like to experience miracles and to live miracles and to be part of your story, God. And tonight, God, we're asking for miracles. We're asking for life change. We're asking for change to be broken, addicts to find peace. God, we're asking for the, for the millennial generation, the Gen Z generation. God, people that are dying for relationship. God, we are asking for miracles of Jesus in their lives. We're asking that you give us relationship upon relationship, that we would put aside law and rules, and that we would love people and listen to them with your heart. And God, we ask that you would make our story part of your story. And that our life would be a miracle and a testament to the goodness and glory of you. In Jesus' name, amen.